Hey folks, Gavin Roth here with another episode of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, sponsored by The Program, your guide to finding and watching women's sports online and on TV. Subscribe to the weekly newsletter at theprogram.substack.com. Canadian tennis is having a moment. It's actually been having a moment for the better part of the past decade. So I tracked down the man tasked with stewarding the development and growth of the sport, Michael Downey. Michael's resume is beyond impressive, with stops at Labatt, MLSE, Molson, the Lawn Tennis Association of Britain, and Tennis Canada, where he is serving his second stint as president and CEO. We discuss Michael's career journey, the people that made an impact on him along the way, and his proudest accomplishments. I love the way he answered that last part. We also discussed his move to England between stints at Tennis Canada, what he learned, how he changed versus his first term at Tennis Canada, and some cool insights into Wimbledon, one of the truly iconic global events. Michael gave insights into the partnerships Tennis Canada has with the likes of National Bank, Rogers, and Sobeys, and how they are working together to leave a legacy in communities and grow the sport of tennis. And we wrap with some wonderful professional development advice. As a lifelong fan of the sport, it was a personal treat to chat with this dynamic and accomplished leader. I hope you enjoy. And for more episodes of the Influencers of Sponsorship Marketing, follow me on LinkedIn, visit Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or check out rothrevenue.com. So I'm a massive tennis fan, as you know. Uh, we've, we, we go back a ways now. So it really is a treat to be talking to the individual tasked with leading the growth of the sport in Canada, Michael Downey. So uh, thanks for making the time. Look forward to it, Gavin. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. So we have so much ground to cover, but before we discuss your origin story, um, I feel compelled to get your take on 2022. Here we sit, early January 23, new season upon us. Uh, but man, what a year 2022 was for Canadian tennis, especially the team success with wins in the ATP Cup to start the year and then capped off by winning the most prestigious team event in tennis, the Davis Cup. And we don't often think of tennis as a team sport, but boy, our Canadian stars are doing their part to change that. How do you reflect on 22 at the professional level? And we'll talk about development stuff during this chat, but at the professional level, looking back. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And 22 was was a sensational year for Canadian tennis. There's no doubt about it. And and, and you're right. It was it was as much about some individual excellence, like from Felix, but also from the team side. And the team side winning Davis Cup also is paramount for kind of the credibility of Canadian tennis because it says you have depth. One player cannot win Davis Cup. One player cannot win Billie Jean King Cup. Felix may have led the team and done his part, but he had to have another singles partner and he needed he needed a doubles partner too in that end. So by winning Davis Cup, it actually raised the profile of Canadian tennis to say, hey, we've got depth and that means we are a world leading tennis nation. We're not just relying on one player 
in that end. So it was a new step function for Canadian tennis beyond like Bianca winning uh, the US Open in 2019, Felix uh, making the year end finals. He's never done that before, getting to six in the world. So the individual accomplishments were great. And they said the power of Canadian tennis, but the team thing took us to a new level. As a huge fan, it was just so exciting to watch. And, and I'll be glued to the Aussie. And I'm hopeful that Felix and Dennis and, and uh, Bianca, Layla, all, you know, Gabby, right, in doubles, uh, that they have uh, a great run. Um, you know, especially high hopes for Felix this year. Um, so listen, you, you've had a, a storied career, uh, stops at MLSC, um, you were at Molson, president of Molson, um, and then your tennis journey, a uh, couple of stints at Tennis Canada, but uh, the part that, you know, so <laughs> was like a wow moment for somebody like me was the LTA, given, you know, it's linked to Wimbledon, one of the iconic events in the, in the world. Um, just talk about your path and, and you know, what, what kind of led you into the industry and took you to where you are today. And, and through that, it would be great to just chat about some proud accomplishments, mentors. Uh, those are important themes to me. Yeah, so, so my background is a bit odd, I think. Um, I didn't get into sports until my mid-30s, actually. Um, you know, so I'm a, an undergraduate bid, biz, uh, graduate from Ivy School at Western, and I went into packaged goods marketing, and that led me to the beer industry, it led me to the agency business. And it was kind of fluky that um, I was at Labatt, and I got a call from John Bidoff when I was about 34 or 35 years of age saying, you're, you're highly recommended, would you be interested in being like, I don't know what the title was, Senior Vice President of Marketing for the Toronto Raptors in their inaugural year. And um, it was an opportunity where I just said, look, I got to look at this. I love sports. And and, um, and I was able to get the job. And, and I will tell you, it was a bit of a funny story because John, when he interviewed me, he's, and, and he ended up offering me a job. He said, I'm offering you a job for a bunch of reasons. One, is that you come from packaged goods marketing, so you obviously understand strategy. You understand promotion because you worked at Labatt Breweries and you know beer was all about promotion in those days. He said, you're obviously a risk taker because you were an expat working in Indonesia of all places. And you've gone through stress and strain because you're divorced. So it was interesting how he actually looked at the world. And then the best part of it <laughs> was he said, and your hair is halfway down your back, so you must be good to get away with that at Labatt. <laughs> so, so he offered me a job, and one of the first things I did uh, was I cut very my aware. Hair. I, I cut my hair because I'm in the service business now. And he actually said to me, you know, you can't walking in to the service business with that look. And he was uh, darn right. But that's that, it's an interesting background at 34, 35 years of age. But I'd always loved sports but I had never thought I would get into the industry. And and an inaugural season of the Raptors. I mean, come on, how exciting. It reminds me of when uh, I got a call early in my career about joining WWE. That was early, it was 2000, 99, 2000. And, you know, The Rock was on his way up and all this talent. And it's like one of these things where you say, I'd be a fool not to jump on that uh, on that train. Yeah, but I remember I remember Gavin too. Like when John hired me, 
he said, look, you're going to find it tough initially. You've never sold a sponsorship deal. You've never sold a ticket in your life. You've never worked on a TV broadcast. You've never worked on merchandise. But he said, you know strategy. Just keep going back to your pedigree of marketing strategy and apply it. And he was right, actually. He said, you can learn that business, but you, you can't learn strategy. And you learn that through your pedigree working at a company called Warner Lambert, which is now yeah. Pfizer and Cadbury in those in those days, actually. Yeah, and, and I, I've often said hiring managers, and we'll call him a hiring manager, even though we know he's, you know, he was so much more than that. They often lack courage, right? And he clearly didn't. They they look for the exact type of, of uh, experience on the resume to be able to say, hey, that's why I hired the guy or the or the woman. And, um, you know, hiring somebody on on all those other skills and saying, I, I have confidence they're smart enough, strategic enough to adapt to what we need and surround them with the right people. I think that's uh, that's such a great uh, approach. So uh, so clearly you made the most of that. And then you go to Molson uh, after that and had a great run there. And what what um, what drew you into the world of of tennis? Well, it was a bit of an odd situation again. Eh? Um, I had lost my job at, at Molson's. They had restructured the regional presidents out. And, uh, you know, this happens to the best of people. So I lost my job. I was out in the marketplace for about nine months, you know, taking a break, but also um, looking for a new job. And a bunch of, you know, I had worked with an outplacement counselor and, you know, we did some 360 reviews and it clearly said, you want to be a leader, you want to work in a marketing organization and you're hands on. So you're probably not best to be running really big companies because you like to get into the trenches and you love sport. And, I, you know, when I was at Molson's, I was the regional president for Ontario West, but I was also the president of Molson Sports and Entertainment. And I think I knew I was actually more interested in the Molson Sports and Entertainment job, even though it was small compared to running the regions. But, you know, you look you look back and you go, hey, maybe I got to follow what I'm interested in. So make a long story short, I, I, I interviewed for the Tennis Canada job, partly because I like change. And they were building at that time the Rexall Center, which is now the uh, Sobe Stadium up at York University. And it was it was moving in a new direction with new opportunities for revenue. So I thought that, that was exciting. But the, the real reason I joined Tennis Canada is they wanted change. The board said we wanted change. And I remember having to convince them, I know nothing about tennis but your CEO doesn't need to know about tennis. I can learn that. Your CEO has to come in and help strategy and guide and mentor people and lead the organization. And um, and I convinced them that you, you want that industry experience. And I had sports management experience, so it wasn't like I was coming totally naive to, to sports management in that end. But I think in the end, they they made the decision. I got the job and I think I think they made the right decision because I helped bring strategy to the organization. And, you know, we drove the high performance agenda. And again, I didn't have any background in that. It was all about what's the strategy and um, and then go out and get the right people. There was a uh, I read an article of uh, the announcement, Tom Tebbett, uh, when you were hired back in what was it, 04? Yeah, I would say, man, that when I saw that, I was thinking he hasn't been there 
that long. I know you had a stint, we'll talk about the LTA, but just that took me aback. But there was a, an interesting quote in there from uh, Pierre Lamarche, who was the co-director at the Ace Tennis Academy at the time. And he said, I'm impressed with the fact that he's a good bus driver. And it's like, it, you know, I paused on that saying, uh, that that seems very very diminishing, but but there's something very very um, telling in that line. What 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 was what did you take from that? Well, I know Pierre quite well, and and you know yeah. he can be a thorn in our side, but in a good way because you always need to be challenged in this end. But I think I think in the bus driving, it was he had seen me make a few presentations, and early on, I remember making a presentation at the tennis professionals conference. So here I'm talking to coaches, like I'm not a coach. Like I don't even play tennis. So I get up and, and talk and I actually had put a chart up and I said, here's the logo for Tennis Canada. I actually modified the logo to say it's called Tennis in Canada. And I think for a lot of the external coaches, they really bought into that. Cause I was saying, it's not about Tennis Canada. It's about tennis in Canada. And we need to facilitate and not be so focused on ourselves. We are a facilitator for the growth in the sport. And I think people like Pierre said, well, that's the kind of view we want. Now, has he agreed with everything we've done? No, but at the end of the day, we're probably never gonna get that agreement. But it's, and I say that a lot to our high performance department, like it's not about us. We will get due credit. We'll get more credit than we deserve. It's about tennis in Canada, not just about our national program in this end, because we represent the interests of rec players, high performance players, coaches, volunteers, we need to get out of our own way and realize what our role is. And it's not just about Tennis Canada. Yeah, listen, I had a stint at Golf Canada and I had a taste of the world you're, you've you've been in for so long. And, and I'm not saying this about Golf Canada, but I've just observed the NSO space and some of them, you said it right, and I've, firm, I've said this many times, have to get out of their own way. There's too many self-serving agendas I won't name names, I won't name NSOs, but they're out there. And the ones who can just, who have the confidence to get out of their way and really shine the light back on the system and 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 the importance of all the, you know, the volunteers, the coaches, the, uh, the, the development is everything. You know, I, I remember at Golf Canada, Jeff Thompson was the chief sport development officer when I was there. And at a speech at the AGM, he said, uh, and it really resonated with me that hope is not a strategy. Um, you you can't hope that the next Brooke Henderson, as we were talking at that time, comes along, falls into your your lap. You can't hope that the next, you know, Felix or or Layla falls into your lap. It takes a village, right? And uh, and and good on you for for you know going in with that mentality. I'm sure that won over. A lot of people. Well, let, um, me, let me let me give you an example that relates to yeah. the Davis Cup win this past year. If, yeah. if you look at a lot of our collateral in winning, it pushes Team Canada. It doesn't push Tennis Canada. It was Team Canada that won. It wasn't Tennis Canada that won. We weren't on the court winning. The players who representing Canada, and that's it's You may sit back and say you're splitting hairs, but you're not really. No. And it means a lot to the players that you're calling them part of Team Canada versus Tennis Canada. We are there facilitating. They are actually out winning, and, yeah. and those are the type of things that that NSOs have to realize. And we're going to get a lot of credit for winning Davis Cup, 
So we we don't need to do that to support our brand. We're going to get it whether we want it or not. But it's really about Team Canada, not Tennis Canada. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure the athletes. It's such an individual sport, you know, the the grind. Uh, and I think we're going to see some of that in this new Netflix special coming up, which will be fun. Um, but but to to have those moments, I see it in golf, which is my other favorite sport, tennis and golf. When they play in those team competitions, man, they it's it's so special. Or the Olympics, right? But you see what it means to them to be a part of that. And and these folks have won. They won so much money. But to to just put that aside, not play for money, play for team. You can just see what it what it means. Nothing beats the emotion of, of a Davis Cup um, and the crowd and, and the, the players and everybody around you. So so you had you head to the LTA in 2014 to help revitalize British tennis. And you have this little annual event called Wimbledon to help inject funds into the organization. I mean, if you were to build a top 10 of iconic global events, it would be hard to leave Wimbledon off that list. What are some of the things about that story championship that maybe we don't, you know, that just stood out to you that you experienced during your time? And if and there's anything else you want to talk about. Oh, no, your- it's, it is, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, nearly four years of my life. Um, and, you know, just to clarify things, the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association is responsible for British tennis like Tennis Cat is, but it's not directly responsible for Wimbledon. Wimbledon is owned by the All England Club. Now, uh, uh, LTA gets 90% of the profits from Wimbledon to plow back into the board. So obviously the LTA has a vested interest in the success of Wimbledon. And I, as the CEO of the LTA, had the honor of of being part of the management committee of Wimbledon. Uh, I wasn't a voting member, but I got to come to all the meetings actually. And and the All England Club made all the decisions. They were all baked before we got there, but that was okay. But it was actually fascinating to be kind of part of the inner circle of the management of this iconic tournament. And a a couple examples uh, I'll cite is, you know, and, and just throwing a name out, you know, more often than not, I sat beside Tim Henman. He was, and he's very powerful right now. The I picked you out in the box, by the way. I, I, yeah, I just, no, and so I but, know but, that guy. <laughs> but Tim Henman was a, a, a phenomenal mind, actually, and I had the honor of interacting with him on numerous occasions, actually. But I, the, the story I'll tell is I've never been part of an organization where the word perfection is in every document. Oh. Wimbledon strives for perfection is partly why they take forever to make changes. Like they will do research, they will noodle things, they will take their time because they want 100 out of 100. They don't want 95 and they don't want 90. And I'm a bit of a ready, fire, aim guy. So like, like, like they are ready, ready, aim, aim, finally fire. And I remember we had research, Gavin, where it's kind of common sense, but we had research that said, we ran a bunch of lead-up events in Nottingham, and Queens, in London, in Birmingham, uh, in Eastbourne. These were great grass court events that led up to Wimbledon. And what our fans in those markets said is we like a piece of Wimbledon because most Brits don't get to go to Wimbledon. It's sold out. It's a lottery. You just don't get tickets, okay? So we said, you've got a museum on site 
could we develop a traveling museum from Wimbledon that we actually take to our events? Kind of a common sense, we're gonna bring Wimbledon to you because you can't get to Wimbledon. Well, the short of the story is, I went to the CEO, Richard, um, Richard over at, uh, at, at the, uh, the All England Club who ran Wimbledon, a really great guy, Richard Lewis. And I said, here's the research and everything else. He said, Michael, I love it. We'll, we'll actually build a prototype, prototype and everything else. So I, then I come back to him about six months later and said, how's that coming? He goes, really well. I said, when do you think it's going to be available? Oh, three years. I said, three years. He goes, Michael, we got to get it perfect. And that's what that's how they thought. Like, there's no rushing anything over there. The other story I'll tell about Wimbledon mm. that, that a lot of fans may not know. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you never get to see the kitchen, which is probably a nightmare in the best restaurants because it's got to be perfect outside for the patrons and you don't get to see the kitchen. Well, at Wimbledon, again, perfection. All those grass courts over whatever their acreage are all tunnels underneath. Everything is tunneled. So all the beer, beer containers, all the cords for broadcast, they're all underground. There's an underground pathway there because they don't want the patrons to see that stuff. And I still remember saying to Wimbledon once, that's a great story, you know, like the average fan doesn't know that. And they go, why would we want to tell them? that? We want them to think we run upstairs in the real world in a perfect way. So there's no mess. They don't want them to know there's tunnels there, but fascinating yeah. three or four years working with Wimbledon. I've got some great friends. They put on a phenomenal event and you are right. You know, as the CEO of the LTA, I had the privilege to be in the Royal Box anytime I wanted to. I had to actually wear a suit and do all the things that are right, which for me was a little difficult being a bit mm -hmm. of a man. But I'll tell you a story and then I'll, I'll pass it back to you. The first visit I made to the Royal Box, I was in the, in the area socializing behind and I had a beer. And I walked to the person who's at the gate as you walk into the seats of the Royal Box. And I said to him, I can't remember, am I allowed to take this out there? And he said to me, not unless you want to come back again. <laughs> <laughs> like their rules, my wife yeah. brought a guest and she actually had a jean jacket on. Nicely oh, dressed, the jean draft. They had her remove the jacket. Like there's, there's a, you know, there was a, a an F1 uh, car race driver. I can't remember his name. He showed up in like casual jeans. They did not let him into the Royal Box. Like there are rules that cannot be broken actually. And it's just the, the protocol and the history of that great event. Some will say it's archa archaic. Others will say, hey, it's a, it's a great tradition and they're respecting the tradition. Yeah, and there's something to be said for certain, certain, you know what, I give events like that a complete pass when it comes to protecting tradition. You know, the, every, there's so much talk about changing with the times. There's little ways to do that, uh, you know, I'm, uh, and I'm sure they've done it, but but that's part of what makes it special. It is. Part of but what makes but it Gavin, I'll, I'll tell you, if I may, I'll tell you another story. Yeah. They, come, they come to mind. So yeah. I was lucky enough to be in the Royal Box when, when Milos... Uh, got to the final and unfortunately lost her to um, Andy Murray. But I was also there for his semifinal and I was wearing a salmon colored like jacket. Okay. Oh, like, boy. 
And yeah. so that that kind of breaks the rules too. But they didn't, they, you know, it was it was a suit coat and I was wearing it. Yeah. And cheering isn't really allowed in the world. <laughs> but this was Milos versus um, Roger Federer, and I was cheering. The great pitcher of Milos serving the ace to win, and I've got my arm up in the air cheering. Now, the locals kind of said, it's okay, he's Canadian, he's cheering. Yeah. So at the final, my chairman pulled they, me They pinned your arms down, yes. <laughs> yeah, at the final, on the Sunday final, my chairman pulls me aside and goes, look, Michael, this is a little uncomfortable, but the, the chairman of the All England Club just wanted to kind of make sure, like, Milos is playing Andy Murray today. You know, you know who you're cheering for. And I said, no, no, it's okay. I know who butters my bread. Yeah. I need to be cheering. Was that Andy's first? Was that his first? Or it, was was his, that... it was his second, actually. Second, okay. It was the second. Yeah. But I, I think it was a funny story because I said to him, I yes. know who butter, <laughs> butters my bread. My rule is I cheer for a Canadian anytime they play anyone but a Brit. But because I'm being paid by British tennis, if the yeah. Brit's playing, I got to cheer for the Brit. But Milos, Milos knew I was really cheering for him. Oh, of course, of course. And it makes me think of, uh, in my own little way, um, my favorite athlete on the planet for many, many, many years is Rafa Nadal. Like any athlete of any sport, he's he's the guy that I get, you know, anxious watching because Rafa makes his pain, his fans suffer like no other uh, athlete. And uh you know, it, 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 uh, I'm thinking of when he played Felix, I think it was at the, at, might have been at the French, and Felix had Tony Nadal, you know, as his coach at the time, and I'm thinking what, and the media made a big thing about it, it makes me think of that, of what's Tony going to do? Like, you know, he's, he's, does he cheer for his, whose butters his bread now, or does he, uh, does he cheer against his nephew? And I think he made the decision to sit in a neutral area, which he I did. thought was, was really odd. Like you're, I at that time I'm thinking you got to be all in on your new charge, and Rafa would understand that you're, you know, you're sitting in in Felix's box. But yeah, yeah, divided loyalties, uh, such such first world problems, right? Um, so so then you come back, and what? How did you come back? What was? How would you just describe? I guess the main thing I want to touch on here is. What was your perspective? How how different was your perspective versus the first time you you came to to you join Tennis Canada? Now you've got all this experience. You've been overseas. You've seen different ways. What was your mindset? Your approach? well, I think you just hit it. Like you know, how often do you get to come back to an old job? Like this hardly ever happens to anyone. So it was a very unique opportunity when my wife and I decided, for personal reasons, we wanted to come back to Canada. Her mother is quite ill in Vancouver yeah. and. She was spending a ton of time in Vancouver when I was in London, and that's not really the way you should be living. But that aside, uh, yeah, you come back with a broader perspective of, whoa, if I had known what I know now, I would have done a better job the first time around. So I think the, the, the new experience of overseeing British tennis, a more developed sport in that country, um, it really influenced my eyes on the on the the weakness that Canada has with year-end court capacity, because Britain had an issue too, and we did a lot of research in Britain around that, but Britain's weather is way better than Canada. So I came back and I said, whoa, Britain has a problem with year-round facilities, and, and they get weather like Vancouver. Canada's got it worse, and it really influenced my thinking that we need to step up in that game 
because we're so deficient in that area as a sport in this country. But yeah, to bring that broader experience back. But I will say, when I landed in the LTA, there were some things that Tennis Canada was doing, especially in the high performance side, that the Brits could learn from. So you know, a smaller NSO really was was punching above its weight. And I brought that experience. I think people got tired of me kind of saying in Canada, we did this way. Just like when I came back to Tennis Canada, I'm sure the locals were tired of me saying the LTA yeah. did it this way. But it was the same industry. And I'm a firm believer in something called R&D, which is yeah. and duplicate. <laughs> And at the end of the day, we don't really compete with British tennis except in high performance. So you can share learning and bring it back and reapply it uh, was what I did, especially in the year round court area. Okay, so rip and duplicate. You worked with Brent Scrimshaw, I think, at some point, didn't you? At Molson's, yeah. Yes, at Molson. And he must have taught that line to Dana Gladstone who, when I worked with both of them at the CFL, I learned R&D. And I've used that line many times. So it's funny how that's made its way. I think way. it started, I think it actually started with a guy named Kurt Camperman, who used to be the head of participation, tennis participation with the USTA. And I stole it from him. So ah. it was rip off and duplicate yes. being used for rip off and duplicate. But it actually, yeah. I really believe in the principle. And again, no, I agree. get out of your own way. Correct. Like you, you don't have to invent everything. Other yeah. organizations, why aren't you trying to reapply it? Like Absolutely. there isn't an original idea out there. No, correct. Um, so I read a piece about the ambition of Canadian tennis and in it you reference the six pillars that hold up your 2023 strategic plan. And I won't, we're not going to get into that, but I did want to touch on, you know, just this conversation makes, I want to cover this here and then, then we could talk about mentorship and, and then we'll shift to partnerships. Um, but uh, raising the bar, raise the bar on winning. And, you know, the team success we talked about off the top is a wonderful manifestation of the plan to raise the bar on winning, but talk about, that and maybe how you plan to continue winning because I think some of the things you've brought back and you've worked on throughout your time in tennis uh, goes into you know living out that goal. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of kind of sub pillars to that, but the couple of them I'll highlight is that, and I think you know you got to be objective on your own performance as an organization, and I think to a certain degree. We were so focused in helping Felix and, and Bianca and Layla and others that we may as an organization taken our eye a little bit off the younger pipeline. And for good reason, but you know, cause you're so close with helping these athletes get to the promised land, we may have taken our eye off. And so they inspire too, right? Yeah, you know they, that. Yeah, so at the end of the day, the inspiration makes a difference. But I think what we've realized is we need to do a lot more in developing the pipeline of kids coming up. Because we we work off what we call a conversion ratio. You know, how many kids do you convert from under 12 to 14 to under 16 to under 18 to transition to pro? And in a country as small as Canada, we don't have that many players in the pipeline. Like there's only something like 4,000 kids that compete six times a year in this entire country. Like you've probably got 4,000 junior hockey players in Etobicoke you know, forget about the entire country. So our pipeline is quite small. So we need to have strategies that to broaden the pipeline, get more kids into the high performance stream, 
but then do a better job of converting them as they get older, knowing that not all of them. So a lot of our sub-strategies are about the pipeline of the development. We've hired a guy who, who who's, that's all he worries about. And I think related to that goes back to my point about Team Canada. That one of the sub-strategies that relates to the pipeline is how do we embrace the entire high-performance world in Canada as part of Team Canada. It's not Tennis Canada, it's Team Canada. Because as you said, it's a village, especially at the younger age. We can't, we can't develop or help develop all these kids on a permanent basis. We need coaches, tennis development centers, our provincial partners working at it. So we need to actually embrace them as part of Team Canada and make sure that they get recognized. So we're going to be mm -hmm. implementing a new program where, you know, if you help develop a player who generates a certain ranking or helps make Davis Cup, you 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 need some recognition. You need some financial reward for that. It, we need to make sure that the, the accolades are passed down the system to generate the inspiration among coaches and, and other facilities to help develop players. Well said. And, and you know, that uh, last thing I'll say on the winning, I go back to even, I feel like, 06 with the Turin Winter Games was a turning point where, you know, the Own the Podium program kicked in and 2010 arrived. You can see the picture over my shoulder of the golden, uh, the, the gold medal hockey game. And um, we stopped being comfortable with personal bests, right, as a country. We started expecting more of ourselves and, uh, and it was borne out on the playing fields, on the surfaces, on, on the courts. Um, so I think it's 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 incumbent upon organizations like Tennis Canada to um, set lofty goals and um, and and uh, you know shoot aim for the moon, right? Yeah, and I will say, you know, we started the National Tennis Center in in 07 or 08 in Montreal, and and the guy that led it, who's now retired, Louis Borfiga. He said to me on numerous occasions that he really thinks one of the big wins of the National Tennis Center was its influence to raise the bar among external coaches, that it raised the bar. So it wasn't just what we did in Montreal, but having that indirectly raised the bar in the standards for those external coaches. And that helped develop the pipeline because it, it inspired them to say, wow, like to compete internationally, we got to have a higher bar and that higher bar has to be at every stage of development. So I think that was one of the, the kind of hidden benefits of a national tennis center is its influence on the private yeah. sector to raise their bar. Yeah, well said. Um, and we'll talk in partnerships. I want to get your take uh, when we get to that uh, shortly on some uh, development programs that you guys have created that your partners are part of. And I think those are just outstanding. Um, so mentors along that journey who any any names any people stand out as being inspirations to you and helping guide your motivating your your achievements yeah, so it was a great question when i read that and it it, it makes you reflect back mm. that you may have forgotten about but you realize in hindsight they actually were mentors maybe they're not connected to them now but they made a difference then the one thing with me that i've realized you know i'm i'm, I'm mid-60s now is I've been looking for father figures my entire life because I lost my father when I was 22 years of age. So in my working world, I never had a, a father. And so in a lot of jobs, I was looking for that father figure. And whether it was a Steve Stavro 
at Maple Leaf Sports or an Allen Slate, they were of the genre of my father. So I think there was some other things going on there. But mm-hmm. names that come to mind is Steve Stavro was a brilliant leader. I thoroughly enjoyed working for him. And 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 he pushed. I haven't me. heard I haven't heard that name in a long time. Oh, and yeah. you know what? And Grocery. There's magnet. certain people that think Steve was just about the money. Absolutely not. Steve wanted to win a Stanley Cup more than anyone else, and I just admired what he brought to the the Maple Leaf organization. Tony Ames has been mm. very important to me. Tony Ames is the former CEO of Coca-Cola Canada. He was my chairman at Tennis Canada. He's on the Olympic Committee board. I continually go back to Tony for advice. He was always there for me. And he was a great chairman because he knew the difference between what a chair's role and a board's role is and what management's role. So he actually helped me in that divide and that end. You know, I've already used his name, John Bidoff. And and Alan Slate, I had never worked for entrepreneurs before, and they just look at the world differently. They take no prisoners. It's their money. And and they made me probably a more aggressive manager than I ever was, because when you work in corporations, you work in rules. Entrepreneurs are about breaking rules. They just are. That's that's why they're successful. And and they were great mentors in that end as well. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I. I enjoy the that this segment uh, of every chat, and people generally have that same reaction that they they smile when they think about mentorship, and uh, it's important to me that the late Chris Lang, I remember early in my career, just took me under his wing, and I always said, I don't know what the heck you're getting out of this. I know what I'm getting out of it, but thank you for you know spending time with me, and uh, he he just was like that, and you you learn so much, and. What you said really resonated with me. I lost my dad at 19, so very similar dynamic. I never had a father figure to turn to when I had career decisions to make. So, you know, I would gravitate to those wise, you know, wise uh, people. And I never thought of that psychological aspect. Oh, no. My wife has reminded me on numerous occasions, how dad would your, how old would your dad be now? Yes. Like, Michael, you're looking for something there that goes beyond work. The, another name I'll throw out, Gavin, is Hugo Powell. So Hugo Powell was the brilliant uh, CEO of Labatt Breweries when I was there, and then eventually orchestrated the 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 acquisition of Labatt by Interbrew, and he went and led Interbrew for years in Belgium. But I had the I was like a director of new business development at Labatt, but I had a direct line to the CEO, and I remember saying to Hugo, like, "Why have you done this?" And he actually said, "I'm protecting you." He said, "Michael." the regional presidents will kill your ideas early in the pipeline. My goal is to keep them alive. So if you have a direct report to the CEO on new products, they're more likely to survive those early rounds when people are are really challenging, why are you doing this? Because as he said, the best ideas are the toughest ideas and they're so easily to kill early on. And like, I'll never forget him telling me that when I said, why do I have a direct report to you? I'm honored, but why do you think it's necessary? That's outstanding. Um, you know, I feel like uh, proud accomplishments. We'll we'll talk about that maybe a little bit uh, towards the end, and we're 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 going to hit on one of the uh, the other key themes of this. This is at its heart uh, a podcast, a show about partnership, sponsorship, marketing, and you know, partnerships. It, it, we're in an interesting 
time right now. It's It really is a time of purpose-driven partnerships and the pandemic really shone a light on the you know, the disadvantaged and, uh, you know, things like mental health and food waste and, you know, hunger really came to the fore. But brands have, they were figuring it out before, but boy, have they accelerated the thinking that we better authentically get behind something. And and the brands that have the means to do it, uh, uh, working with properties, uh, can do it well. And I've always thought it's incumbent upon, upon properties to create meaningful programs that partners can get behind. I read about um, such programs that uh, you guys have developed that love your insights on. One is the National Bank uh, Player Court Refurbishment, and the other is the Community Tennis Courts Program supported by Rogers. Uh, and, and anything else you want to talk about. Um, uh, but those two stood out to me when I read in in a recent announcement you put out about supporting tennis in Canada. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is about sharing kind of your vision with your partners and uh, it's common sense, but I think a lot of properties may not do it. Like, you know, let people under the hood of what you're trying to do here. And from a tennis development end, you know, at the end of the day, where people play tennis and being able to play on better facilities, better courts year round is part of how we're going to grow this sport. And it allows companies like National Bank and Rogers to actually get into communities through us. So, you know, the, the new National Bank Play Your Court program is about renovating outdoor courts across the country so people can play, you know, in a safer environment, a better community environment, a better atmosphere. And it's allowing National Bank to extend their brand to communities across the country. And it's going to make a big difference. We'll announce two more properties this year after testing it with the city of Brampton this year. And the, and the Rogers year-round court program, um, you know, we went to them and said, we've got a problem. And when they made the decision they wanted to step down from title to presenter, they were looking yeah. for something in the community. And we said, well, this is the most important community initiative we have. And and they're loving it. We've announced now eight projects, four have actually opened, and four more will open next year. And we're going to do this over the next decade with our friends at Rogers, just like we're going to do it over the next decade with our friends at National Bank. So these are really important things. And it also gives, you know, one of the things we've learned is most of our partners say it's phenomenal to be part of the National Bank Open in Montreal and Toronto. They're, they are lightning rod events. Mm-hmm. But it's a one-week event. So if we can get you into community initiatives, those are things that extend your brand all year round into tennis yep. and into communities across the country. So again, I think one of the advantages of national sports organizations is their purpose. You know, their purpose is to grow the sport, to let people play wheelchair tennis, to let underserved communities. These kind of things are really meaningful to corporate partners out there. So I think it's when you talk about purpose-driven, I think the NSOs really have rich oh, yeah. there to work with their partners because this is what we do for a living. It's not just about high performance. It's a bro- growing everyday sport in communities across the country. Yeah, and, and giving opportunities to disadvantaged giving opportunities, uh, making it more inclusive, uh, which is such an important, um, you know, uh, requirement for anybody. And and sport 
we all know sports is a unifier, is uh, brings people together, gives a sense of belonging, community, and tennis uh, is is has been having its moment for years, and I'm sure the partners are are uh, are excited about being part of that journey. Any other, you know, we we you talked about the events. Um, maybe let's talk talk uh, pause on that for a sec. Uh, you know, you've got world class events happening every year in Toronto, Montreal. I, I've had I've been lucky enough to attend many times. Uh, you know, any highlights of what you guys are doing with partners there? Um. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of examples in this, and I think it it, it obviously starts with National Bank. Yeah. And National mm-hmm. Bank, you know, they signed a a mega ten year agreement with us uh, to be title of these two events, and you know that in its own right was telling. Where the the CEO said to me, Michael, I want to go long term. I don't want to be in renewal yeah. discussions. I want to build these events and help build tennis with Tennis Canada, and I want to do it with a long view. And that, that to me said something about the partnership in that end. I will also say before I bring it back to the tournament that our friends at National Bank, a lot of people in English Canada may not know that name that well, but it's, you know, yeah. the, biggest, it's the biggest bank in Quebec, Bank Nationale. But the, the point I want to raise is that we signed a non-binding letter of intent on a 10-year agreement in February of 2020. COVID hit in hmm. March. We were totally exposed. We were actually, as an organization, heading to a 15 to $10 million loss. But for our organization, oh. very, very harmful. Like we had to actually lay off 50% of our staff. Like we were hit harder than probably any NSO because we're large, we're pretty independent of government because of these two profitable tournaments. So bring it back to National Bank. We negotiated with National Bank from February to August to get the definitive agreement signed. The dollars never changed from the non-binding agreement. They had us over a barrel if they wanted to. And I remember they'd negotiated a tough deal. They got value and everything else, so they were very good at that. But they never wavered for the amount of money which was material to us over 10 years. I remember talking to their retiring CEO, Louis Vachon, who helped orchestrate this deal. And I was at his house and I said, Louis, I've got to tell you, like you guys had us over the barrel and you guys were so authentic in your negotiations. He said to me, Michael, why would we take advantage of you? We want you strong. We want the sport strong. And you needed help at that point in time. And I gave direction to my team that you are going to honor that non-binding agreement, but you're going to do it to make sure you get fair value. And I'll never forget that. And my loyalty personally to the Bank Nationale is over the top, but they are going to be an enormous partner for us. And they, the CEO actually said this to me, Louis. He said, Michael, we may be a really big entity in the province of Quebec. We're trying to build our footprint in English Canada. Our return on investment will come from your Toronto tournament and our ability to build our brand outside of Quebec while defending what we have in Quebec. And again, it's been a great partnership. And we just know back to the National Bank Open that they are going to work with us just to continually take this to a higher level. They really believe in innovation. They also believe in, in, in diversity and inclusion in an enormous way. So they really want us pushing that in terms of our fan base um, and, and opportunities, not just in the, the street of tennis and the community of tennis, 
but also who attends our event and who watches our event. Uh, that's a great story. And I was going to hit on a key point there. The, the top has to send that message down because it's easy for the director of partnerships or the VP of marketing or the CMO to look at it a little bit more critically and say, hey, we've got to save money, we've got to squeeze, we've got to uh, cut. But if the leader at a time like that says, no, this is a true partnership, it's a long-term, and that's the key as well, long-term. If it was a one-year deal, two-year deal, you might have had smaller partnerships that maybe there were some contentious discussions around the pandemic, but the long-term partnerships, uh, that's where they come back and pay dividends. So that's that's a wonderful Well, I, I, and I remember, Gavin, Louis Vachon also telling me that, you know, before we signed the deal, he said, Michael, I just want you to know, I've taken this to the office of the president. The office of the president are all the direct reports of Louis Vachon. And he said, I'm done that because I'm going to retire soon. And I want to make sure my predecessor, who's Laurent, um, who, who's now in, in office, and his direct reports actually believe in this property. Because the last thing I want to do is take us down a road that they don't want to be part of. Again, it just showed to the astute leadership of Louis Vachon to, to get his entire management team buying into this long-term property. That's great. Um yeah, any any uh, anything with Sobeys that uh, is uh, you want to highlight? I mean, they've stepped up and put their name on the uh, on the stadium, uh, but I'm you know I always say the name on the stadium gets you know tons of media coverage, but it's what they do you know at the at the ground level uh, to engage with fans and and the community that that really is 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 what uh, pays off. Well, I will say that Sobeys is another brilliant organization. Mike Mel Medline has done a great job there in, in building that brand. And he's done it, in my view, a lot with sports properties, not, yeah. just, not just the involvement with Tennis Canada and the National Bank Opens and our stadium, but he's, he's obviously in the Olympic property and the Blue Jays and others. And he, I think he's really carved a, a very strong brand profile for Sobeys that stands out in a marketplace that's tough to actually stand out. Sobeys is interesting with us because while they're a sponsor of our two tournaments, they have back walls and, and activate, they've really bought into our venues. So oh. they are the naming partner of our Toronto venue, Sobeys Stadium. They're also the naming partner of our venue in Montreal, which is IDA, IGA Stadium. And they also, we sold them, we worked with our partners in Nova Scotia that it's the Sobeys Atlantic Tennis Center in Nova Scotia. Wow. So they've really seen value in kind of the footprint of three of our bigger venues in the country, and they are interested in other venues in that regard. So again, they found their special place, and in some of it is actually through our venues and the things we'll do at our venues year-round. Outstanding. Good. Um, you know, just, just before we shift to professional development advice, um, you know, any any highlights? We've just talked about a wonderful journey. What are some of the things that you're most proud of in terms of uh, accomplishments? It's it's people. Yeah. Uh, and I'll go back to my Raptors experience. Um, you know, that was a phenomenal organization in those early years because we really had to try harder. Like the Toronto marketplace, we were selling tickets in Skydome. That was a disaster. The market didn't know anything about tennis. We had to run ads, basketball 101, because the fans just didn't understand. And it was really tough work. It was really tough work. But I think of the people that 
that were worked in my organization because I led marketing and sales. Like you had Steve Griggs. Steve Griggs was my ticket sales manager. I didn't actually depart with. Steve Griggs, as you know, is the CEO of the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's got two Stanley Cups. He is a phenomenal leader. Chris Overholt. Chris Overholt was an insurance salesman who I hired to lead sponsorships at the Toronto Raptors. You know, Chris Overholt now oversees overactive media. He was the CEO of the, um, of the Canadian Olympic Committee. You got two other people that were a little more removed from me, but Dave Hopkinson. Dave Hopkinson was selling tickets for the Toronto Raptors. He's now the president of Maple, uh, Madison Square Garden Properties, okay? Um, and Jeff DeLine. Jeff DeLine, he actually had to remind me of this. There was one point in time where he was my interim executive assistant. My interim <laughs> executive assistant. Yeah. He now is the chief commercial officer of the New York Mets. Yeah. Like these four guys have done so well. And I think they got their start in this unique culture called the Toronto Raptors. And I was part of that, actually. So one of the things I really take, you know, I'm 65 years of age now. So you kind of reflect on, you know, wow. who did you influence? I had I had breakfast the other day with Chris Overholt. And he, he called me boss. Like, you know, <laughs> wow, like you've moved on way above your boss, as all of those guys are. But isn't that what you want to see? You want to see your children do better than you? All four of those guys have, have have left me in the dust, but at the end of the day, I'm proud that, that I had some influence in their development. I love that answer. Good on you. Um, let's uh, let's wrap with um, professional development advice. You know, I, I just love talking to and reading about high performers, and but not what they've done. It's how they got there, how they do it. What what are some of the habits? that they lean on to be the best version of themselves. So anything that you want to impart, because I get a really interesting mix of people listen to this. I get, I was talking to a guy who's the CEO of the sale GP, um, Canadian sale GP team, for example, this new sailing, uh, exploding uh, sailing property. He's based in France, but he's a Montrealer. Tells me he listens to the podcast whenever I put it out. Um, you get young people coming up who listen to it. But yeah, just any any professional development advice? Well, a couple things, you know, and none of it's rocket science. But the first one is, you know, there are a lot of people that come out of university or college and they want to get into sport. And I give them the same advice. Out of college or university, get the best job. And if the best job to develop you isn't in sport, then so be it because you can always shift over to sport later. It's about developing your skills. So I actually think part of the reason I've been successful in sport is I had a great foundation working for Warner Lambert and Package Goods Marketing for seven or eight years. And I learned to write a document. I learned to strategically. All those kind of things were skills that I've, uh, I've applied in the sports sector. So the advice I give to people, especially if you're coming out of university and, and, and college is look, don't chase your dream job, like working for the Toronto Maple Leafs or whatever. Go get the best job that's going to develop you and then find a way back into sport if that's important to you. But don't take sport because it's there. Make sure you're going to be developed if you go into those jobs. And the other one that I would throw out is that you learn from adversity. 
That's your test. Mm. And you've got to be objective and you've got to spend the time figuring out why did you fail? Why didn't it go right? And those are those are tough learnings and sometimes they're embarrassing. But at the end of the day, that's that's how you develop your leadership skills. And how do you respond to adversity? You know, people don't break down success. They just they just sit back and pound their chest. We were successful doing something. But it's it's when you face adversity, you actually see how strong you are and how did you learn? And I've had tons of failures, but I learned from those failures. I took some risks in those failures. Some of them they shouldn't have done. I should have done more due yep. diligence. But you learn from your failures and you just got to be objective about them. And boy, doesn't that that isn't sports a great metaphor for life? And it just I think about, you know, some of your athletes. And and they learn from adversity. They learn from their losses. And you always hear, you know, the the interview after. What do you take away from this? And on reflection, they 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 take a lot from their losses and and put that into the building blocks to eventually be successful. And maybe that's a good foreshadow for what hopefully will be a banner 2023 for Canadian tennis. So listen, thank you so much for taking the time it's been uh, such a, a neat chat great stories and uh, i wish you nothing but continued success thank you for that and you as well gavin